Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From his undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. It is the 18th of March, year of our Lord, 2019. Happy belated St. Patrick's Day for those that do celebrate it out there. And today we have a, you know, same old show. A little faux uh, climate strike or some shit where they're brainwashing kids. The New Zealand attack and our usual media sucks. Democrats are horrible and our violent left. So, wanted to cover up front before we go into stuff, uh, the climate strike. But, you know... We, we reported on the last show that it's clearly obvious, obvious with Lisa Page's testimony that the Obama DOJ shut down anything towards Hillary. You have Comey saying he shut it down. Not a single media covered it. They ignored it. Um, and the only thing they will cover is the negative after it towards conservatives and you know it's a it's not linked together but simultaneously it breaks christopher Steele says he didn't realize cnn i report was user generated he took some of the allegations from actual comments from cnn viewers and insert them in the Steele report chris saliza rolled out when this was released and tried to defend it Say it with me. The Steele dossier was not why the Russian probe began. Are you sure? Because that's how they got the wiretaps. The entire world just attacked him and showed him the Russian probe began because George Papadopoulos was bragging about Australian diplomat. Say it with me, Chris. Is parroting the damage control narrative meant to exonerate rogue FBI agents determined to need to meddle with the 2016 election? He had no independent evidence to support his claim. He repeatedly asserts from individuals who are in deep trouble. And it's true. It's spin. We already know they did the dossier to get it all started. That's how they got the fucking warrants. And now we find out it's from CNN iReport where... Crazy loon lefties write shit down? Are you serious? But yet, we'll show every show with our violent... Samuel Jackson, Trump supporters complicit in ruining the planet. We're the bad people. Anybody voted for Trump, anybody who talks about, hey, we shouldn't redo the whole Constitution, because Colorado put it in law. They are not going to electoral. They're going to give their electoral votes to whoever won the popular popular vote in the country. We talked about it, but it was just a bill. But the governor signed it. I mean, every week we talk about all the crazy things the left are doing because they don't like the world the way it is. And then they do this climate stuff. Axios, not a liberal stort. Uh, liberal news network. Climate scientists refute 12-year deadline to curb global warming. Why it matters. This do-or-die framing was found a powerful advocate and Democratic freshman. This is all them writing. Liberals. 
AOC, who said on Monday the millennials understand that we only have 12 years till the world's going to end. She's pushing a broad policy proposal called the Green New Deal. The big picture, during the past year, several scientific reports have been released that underscore the urgency of slashing emissions with greenhouse gases to avoid facing severe consequences. A particularly influential report was published by the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in October 2018. It found that global warming could still be held to 1.5 Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit of warming relative to pre-industrial levels. Net human caused carbon, blah, 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 blah. The catch. While there are only 12 years left till 2030 when the IPCC report came out, the reality is that we have a diverse array of choices before us in terms of how to soon to make emission cuts and how significant and costly they are. Top climate scientists told Axios their comments were about framing the framing of a rigid 12-year timeline. 12 years isn't a deadline, and climate change isn't a cliff we fall off. It's a slope we slide down. We don't have 12 years to prevent climate change. We have no time. It's already here. And under business-as-usual scenarios, the world isn't going to end in exactly 12 years. It goes on and on and on. And basically, these are scientists saying AOC's rhetoric is bullshit. Just bullshit. But it's really not about that. It's about a political agenda to turn America to a socialist state. They include race relations and everything. It is a catch-all religion that the left has conjured up to get young kids to do stupid shit like this. Children in 100 countries around the world are walking out of classrooms today to protest inaction on climate change. They say government failings, the governments are failing future generations by not cutting emissions and failing to get global warming under control. Our Bill Weir has more. Every Friday, Alexandra Villasenor walks to the front of the United Nations and chooses this bench over seventh grade. It is a one-girl strike. And it started months ago after a trip to California brought her frightfully close to a paradise in flames. Because the air quality was the worst in the world and I have asthma and we had to like even roll up wet towels and put them under windows. It was so scary her family sent her back to New York early where she began researching how hotter fires, longer droughts, bigger storms are all being baked into her future thanks to our relentless reliance on fossil fuels. And that is how she found another very worried teenager named Greta Thunberg. You say you love your children above all else, and yet you're stealing their future in front of their very eyes. After starting her one-girl school strike in her native Sweden, the 16-year-old made headlines by going into rooms full of world leaders and billionaires and calling them out for a failure to act. Adults keep saying we owe it to the young people to give them hope. But I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to act as if the house was on fire. Because it is. Yeah, she retweeted. She's going to be one for the history books. Absolutely. And and you think you will be too? Maybe. That means a complete overhaul of the biggest economy in the world. Yeah. 
Easy. Easy peasy. <laughs> Inspired by the youth-led March for Our Lives, they are hoping that millions of kids across 60 countries make a statement that cannot be ignored. Welcome to the revolution. Change is coming and action is needed, whether the grown-ups like it or not. Bill Weir, CNN. Groups of students across America say they will skip class tomorrow for the first national school strike over climate change. We've seen student walkouts for gun control. Now it seems climate change is getting the same treatment. And this is expected to be a major protest. But it began with just a few teenagers on social media. They were reading about the worst-case scenarios of climate change, and they came to a pretty logical conclusion. Why keep going to school to prepare for a future that might not even exist? Villa Senor is co-founder of Youth Climate Strike U.S., along with 12-year-old Haven Coleman and 16-year-old Isra Hersey. They're calling for, among other things, 100% renewable energy by 2030. If you could teach everybody one thing about what you've learned about climate change, what would it be? That a lot of world leaders and politicians have to start making um, decisions based on facts. They need to start listening to scientists, and they need to stop being bought off. And if they don't? If they don't, then you can say goodbye to your life and your future. Students all over the globe, including the U.S., are skipping school to demand action on climate change. Hey, right? That's right. This yeah. is happening today. Organizers are calling the event here the U.S. Youth Climate Strike. Similar strikes planned in nearly 100 countries already wow. started. You look at this. All around the globe, kids walking out of school and protesting and wanting action by their governments to take action on climate change. opportunity to decide the direction of not only our own communities, but our country. I believe in a country where every child has the opportunity to live to their full potential. Yeah. A, a country that puts its greatest hope in the future of all children than we do in our memories of the past. A country at its finest, which represents that we as Americans should strive to be united in our diversity. <laughs> Combating hate and reshaping societal outlooks by reinventing an inclusive democracy is a great task. And we should consider ourselves fortunate to be in positions of influence where we can make a difference. And to, those who, and to those who deny the threat of climate change, I have this to say. They are not my words. They're words that I borrowed from one of my greatest inspirations. She says, you are not messing with politics. You're messing with lives. You're messing with futures. The young people of America, the young people of the world don't want you to be playing with their lives. And they are not going to just sit down and listen. They are going to be in your face and they're going to tell you the direction they want their future to take.
And this young woman, who is such a great inspiration for me, says that she wants to make sure that every politician views and values every single life. I happen to have the honor of calling her my daughter. no idea why we're striking, then like, what on earth? You must be utter idiots if you're wondering why we're striking. Like, look around you. Like, look at the climate charge. Look at the amount of CO2 in our atmosphere. against climate change because politicians today are not willing to do enough about it so we're taken to the streets to fight for our futures and for those who are suffering from the consequences of climate change today the media losing their damn minds on it there, there was pictures the amazing thing it was just a new york thing I, I i seriously went to all these websites it seemed like new york california small one in florida there wasn't a shitload you heard that uh anti-semite islamist uh omar talking about it um and even their signs weren't as catchy as i thought they'd be there's one, dear Nancy Pelosi, will you support a Green New Deal to protect our future climate strike? But it wasn't huge. It was huge in Europe, in London. But they didn't really get the numbers I think they were looking for. Alyssa Milano, the climate strike was just the beginning. This is Zero Hour is launching a campaign to get to the roots to get to the roots of the system of oppression that caused the climate crisis. Sign up here. Become a zero-hour ambassador in your community. We need address We need address climate change. That's literally what they wrote. We need to address. Not as a standalone issue floating separately from everything else, but as a grand culmination of all our societal injustice that have been building up for the centuries. Jamie Margoli at her TEDx talk launch, launching our Get to the Roots campaign. Courtney Shattuck, I'm beginning to think climate change isn't really about climate change. It's a unifying target, which makes an ideal rallying cry. All other progressive wars can be fought in its name. And it's true. It, 
she's she's 100% true trying to get this app to open um when you go to their form i i bookmarked it docsgoogle.com which you know doesn't surprise me um you know this is your form to submit email name age gender with non-conforming other race where do you do you live in a community that is affected firsthand by climate change? They're all going to say they are, but they're not. Are you aware that people of color are the most impacted by climate change? Because they don't use electricity, it's only white people? Okay. What do you think a zero-hour platform? Have you had any opportunity to take action against climate change? What are some ideas you have for climate change? Zero-hour is women of color-led. Why do you think it's important for women of color? It's, I'm not... I swear to God, it is just a catch-all. It's just a catch-all. It's a religion. I think I said a couple podcasts ago, it's like it's like the New Testament for the progressive religion. And they realize they could take this climate change and they could wrap all their shit. Climate change affects people of color. Climate change affects specifically women of color. Climate change, wait a minute, it protects gay, or it attacks gay people. and It's solely affecting transgenders because it's harder for them to comb their hair or some shit because of high humidity. I mean, seriously, it's a crock of shit. And then to have real scientists come out and say the 12-year thing is just a crock of shit that everybody already knew. But you didn't hear that in the media. Because they're procs. They're all in on this shit. If the fucking left came up with, we need to all stop driving cars to save a fucking ant, the media would roll and say, save the fucking ants. They'd have ant shirts on. They'd all get rid of their cars. I mean, it wouldn't matter that the ant is only in, like, the middle of nowhere where nobody drives anyway, and it's not near the road, but they, they wouldn't need any of that stuff. That wouldn't really matter. Because they're all in on anything the left rolls out. Whereas a conservative who got up on a stage and literally uttered the, we have 12 years and we're all going to die... They would roll out every scientist on the planet that Axios did to say, yeah, that's not true. We're, we're not going to die. The world's not ending in 12 years. It's almost like a cult, folks, because we got the people that don't want to reproduce because of that. I mean, when in your life have you ever fucking, oh, I'm going to pattern my life off what some Manchurian candidate told me. Seriously, what have you put that much value in a politician that you don't want to reproduce? Second great thing that happened, Southern Poverty Law Center fires co-founder Morris D. Racism and sexual harassment. Multiple incidents. Multiple. These are the people that say every conservative group is horrible and a hate group and their founder was doing this stuff. Do we see a pattern, boys and girls? 
The left is constantly wrapped up in sexual harassment. Constantly wrapped up, just like Hillary's email showed, and horrible shit they're saying about everybody. Per capita, there's more gay people living in the South. Articles explaining, we'll see today, why they live in the South, because they get treated really nice, and they aren't being harassed. But in liberal places, they are. Do, Do we see a common denominator? These people talk off their fucking nose at everybody, but they're the biggest violators. It's it's kind of fucked up. So let's go into our violent left. I think it's unfair um, to a couple of questions very quickly, if you can. Do you think it's unfair to um, put some onus on what happened to this president to today? That, would that be reckless to do that? No, I think it's fair. I mean, I, the analogy that I would draw is that, you know, Trump's relation to these right-wing acts of terrorism is kind of similar to the Saudi government's relationship to jihadist terrorism. They're not sponsoring terrorism. They're not telling people to go out and kill. But they are spreading so, ideology so of then, hatred that inspires people. Why then use that language? Is that, this is a question I was trying to get to. Yeah. If, you, if indeed, when people say you can't blame him for it, I mean, directly he didn't yeah, do it, right? right? Of course. Uh, obviously. Yeah. But... Why then use the language of invaders, the same, the same thing that the, the terrorists in New Zealand did and, and other terrorists use? Why use that language? Because xenophobia, Islamophobia, racism, those are core parts of President Trump's political identity. Mm-hmm. That's what he uses to appeal to many of his followers. And he's not trying to call for violence, but you have to understand there are some people who hear the message and are driven over the brink. Mm-hmm. And that's the danger that we face here when you're because acts, words of hatred lead to acts of hatred. And President Trump needs to understand that. He needs to stop with this rhetoric, but he refuses to do it. Daryl, you have said that typically during Republican administrations, we've seen a, de- a decrease in white wing um, extremism. But you say that that's not the case under this administration. Explain why. Yeah, so typically under Democratic administrations, the white supremacists get. Uh, fearful of expansion of minority rights. The anti-government extremists, they get paranoid and fearful over possible gun legislation. So when Republicans come into power, they don't have those same fears and worries. Uh, And so you you tend to see a decrease in their activity, less organizing, less violent attacks. But what makes this cycle different is the 2016 political campaign was so heated. And, you know, Donald Trump has borrowed some of these extremist themes that I used to see you know, on Stormfront and other neo-Nazi sites, you know, 10, 15 years ago, he mainstreamed these ideas in his political platform during the 2016 campaign. And so the extremists look at his language and the themes that he's putting forth, like a border wall, banning Muslims from coming into the country, mass deportation of immigrants. These are extremist narratives uh, that were once on the dark recesses of the Internet, now being mainstreamed by the president. Hmm. A political backlash ensued because of an objection to the label right-wing extremism. The report also rightly pointed out that the returning military veterans may be targeted for recruitment by extremists. Republican lawmakers demanded then-Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano rescind my report. The American Legion formally requested an apology to veterans. Some in Congress called for me to be fired. I wonder- let's, let's talk about this. You heard what the Prime Minister, I'm going to bring you in. Be, um, uh, Mehdi, because 
this is these kind of, this kind of thing as you said before is personal uh, to you and it speaks to the violence that is going on in our culture very much so and I think uh, to kind of talk about the story we were talking about before in terms of Trump's rhetoric as well Western governments for far too long have turned a blind eye to domestic terrorism to domestic far-right terrorism we now know from the stats for example here in the US that there are more attacks more casualties from domestic terrorist groups far-right groups than there are from quote-unquote jihadist or Islamist groups you have Muslim victims of terrorism tonight in New Zealand, um, I mentioned the attack in Canada, Quebec City, shortly after Trump was inaugurated. There have been attempted attacks and attacks in Minnesota, in various places across the U.S. Um, we do need to start taking this seriously. Hate crimes against minorities, against Jewish groups, against Muslim communities, against people of color are on the rise in Britain, across Western Europe, United States, Canada, Australia, and now, sadly, New Zealand. And that requires politicians to take the problem seriously and also to deal with their language. You asked Matthew earlier about, is there someone out there tonight who's going to hear Trump's rhetoric and act on it? I mean, s less than six months ago, we know that one of his big supporters sent pipe bombs in the mail to dozens of people who Trump had personally attacked and demonized, who was driving around in a van with pro-Trump imagery and anti-CNN imagery. We know that lots of far-right attackers have claimed to be Trump supporters in recent months. So this is not just about Trump, but this is about politicians, especially on the right, taking seriously this problem and really being careful about their language, mm. at very minimum. The manifesto makes several references to the United States. In one portion, the author responds to a self-directed question about whether he supports President Trump. He writes, as a symbol of renewed white identity and common purpose, sure. As a policymaker and leader, dear God, no. It also cites the Second Amendment and says he chose guns as his method of killing to divide the country. He says his goal of the attack was to create conflict between the two ideologies within the United States on the ownership of firearms. And, and this is rhetoric we have seen percolating and sometimes it gets picked up by powerful people. And when they echo it with their megaphones, that, uh, that, that has a, a real effect uh, in people's minds because it legitimates it. Um, legitimizes it. And so it, this is, is what we are seeing in these early hours, this horrific massacre at a mosque in New Zealand. Dana, your thoughts? Yeah, look, this is tough. I mean, let's just call it what it is. It's very tough because you do not want to assign blame, as Adam Kinzinger was saying to you uh, very forcefully, John Berman, in, in the last segment, uh, to President Trump or anyone in particular for somebody who is a nut job and an animal and, and mm -hmm. every other synonym you can come up with. But, you know, we also have, uh, until recently, become more used to, when these things happen, uh, presidents to come out and unify and use language of mm -hmm. unity and coming together. Um, President Trump did that in this tweet this morning. Um, the question is, can he and will he do more to bring together uh, the, the try to bring together people? Uh, that's the opposite of what we saw in Charlottesville. And it is the opposite of what we see when the political calendar gets close to Election Day, when he knows what riles up his base. Yeah. And the problem is riling up his base, you know, using terms like invaders in ads that he tweets out also reaches people who are nutjobs. And that is the balance that I think we're all getting at here that everybody hopes that he strikes better. Yeah, I just want to be clear. We're not assigning responsibility. No. We're not right. drawing the connection. They are. 
the gunman is. The, mass, the terrorist is the person who brings up how much he likes what President Trump is saying. Mm -hmm. The Tree of Life synagogue shooter is the person who talked about how he likes the language of what President Trump is using with invaders. The crazed uh, attempted terrorist who sent the bombs to the attempted bombs to CNN had his van plastered with all of the pro-Trump, pro-Pence stuff. They're drawing the connection. We're reporting right. that connection. Exactly. That's right. And, and it also speaks to special responsibilities leaders have to mm -hmm. consider the impact of their words and their rhetoric. Um, and, and, you know, it, sometimes people will just dismiss it as, oh, that's play to the base. That's just a little bit of red meat rhetoric. But ideas can... On this day of global violence where 49 people are dead because, I mean, I'm only going by the gunman's notes in his manifesto, if this is really his, he is inspired by the white supremacist movement. He's inspired by violent rhetoric. What are your thoughts when you hear President Trump say that? Well, I mean, very simply, the words matter. It is clear that some of this language, which is coming from some of the highest places in the land in the world, is being weaponized now and being weaponized, Clarissa, all around the world. Well, I, I think what they do is they um, are given credence, and I'm being careful here, uh, validity, justification for their horrible, violent thoughts because it's amplified in the public space, either by our president or, or uh, reporters or analysts on TV or, or in literature. So being very careful, the president is not responsible for what happened in New no. Zealand, but, right, absolutely. But the president's language to date has been irresponsible knowing the groundwork of white radicalization that is going on worldwide right now. In other words, he is our leader and, uh, and showing responsibility would be to not mimic that language. Words have consequences. And those of us who have microphones afforded to us on a daily basis because we're in the media or because we're elected officials or because we are celebrities, need forever to be mindful of who's out there and watching and that not all who are watching are at all times playing with a full deck. And, and that's where he comes up short time and time again. I'm not assigning blame for what happened in New Zealand today, but it's a reminder to me of the responsibility that goes with having celebrity status. God needs to change people's hearts, and I beg he does. He needs to change their language. But you cannot put this on President Trump. I'm not putting it on President Trump. There's one man who pulled the trigger right. here, okay? Yeah. The person who is giving a sign of allegiance to President Trump is the killer here. He calls him a symbol of white identity. Yeah. The language he uses in this manifesto is all about invaders. It's yeah. all about invaders, which is similar language to the killer at the synagogue in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. It's also language that President Trump used in a campaign ad before the midterm election. Yeah. The word invader means something to white supremacists around the world. Why? So I think, again, to make the connection of a president saying, I'm concerned, for instance, with illegal immigration. In he says country. invaders. Now, hold on. But to say that. And then to go to a guy that's willing to kill 50 people, he may make a connection and say, President Trump's my idol. That doesn't put it on President Trump. I don't know what a sick man that would decide to kill 49 people innocently was thinking. I don't want to have any idea, frankly, what was in his mind. But what I know is this. It cannot be connected. We cannot sit here and say, what is it that President Trump is doing that's somehow triggering these people? This is an evil man. Our farmers. Bum, 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 bum. President Trump reached out to the New Zealand Prime Minister today, saying the United States stands, quote, ready to help. The killer's manifesto, meantime, mentions President Trump calling him, quote, a symbol of renewed white identity and common purpose, unquote. 
Jim Mikasa is the White House for us tonight. Jim, has the White House said anything about the reference to the president in this so-called manifesto? Well, the president was asked about it, Anderson, and he said he hadn't read it, but uh, the White House counselor, Kellyanne Conway, she was asked about this earlier in the day, and she was urging reporters to read the entire manifesto and that there were parts of the manifesto that said uh, that this killer was an eco-terrorist, she said, and so on. She was really looking pack, uh, past the language uh, in this manifesto that was describing the president as, as sort of a hero to people who uh, identify with the, their white heritage. Uh, and what was also striking, Anderson, in that manifesto was that uh, the killer was using terms like invaders and invasion uh, when talking about immigration and the immigration issue, almost the same kind of language that the president was using earlier today when he was vetoing that legislation up on Capitol Hill, rebuking his use of a national uh, emergency declaration to build his wall on the border. Uh, so the White House uh, can't whitewash the white nationalism uh, every time, Anderson. I mean, as we heard earlier, the president claimed today that, that white nationalism is not a rising threat in his opinion around the world. Uh, that's right. And, and that obviously stood out as just be co being contrary to the facts, as we know from recent studies and even FBI uh, statistics in, in just the last couple of years. Uh, that, that all shows that white nationalism, that right wing extremism is on the rise, uh, not only here in the United States, but around the world. If you look at what's happened here in the U.S. in the last few years, uh, whether it's the neo-Nazi uh, violence on the streets of Charlottesville, the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh last year, Anderson, even the pipe bomb. Uh, attempted pipe bomb attack on CNN and other Democratic uh, targets. Uh, Anderson, that is right-wing extremism uh, violence and the kind that is on the rise here in the U.S. and around the world, uh, whether or not the president likes to admit to it or not. Mm. Anderson. Uh, Jim Costa, thanks. We're going to get perspective now from USA Today columnist Kirsten Powers and Washington Post columnist Max Boot, the author of... I want to go back to this this apparent manifesto, if you will. The question was, we were or are you a supporter of Donald Trump? Uh, and Ned, the, the shooter's apparent response here, as a symbol of renewed white identity and common purpose, sure, as a policy maker and leader, dear God, no. Ned, first of all, just what, what do you make of this particular excerpt? Well, Craig, in some ways, it's really not surprising. The tragic reality is that President Trump, uh, whether uh, intentionally or I think in a lot of cases, even inadvertently, has provided a lot of fodder for people like this. This is a president um, who has given plenty of rhetorical ammunition, I think, to terrorists like this. Terror you know, it's, it's almost horrible that everything in the world that happens is Trump's fault. It's predictable. It's like clockwork. Granted, we said on the show, him saying there were some good people there probably wasn't the best choosing for Charlottesville. <clears throat> and his nationalism is always going to be automatically, oh, it's about white people. Going back to a time when blacks and women didn't have power. The left's very predictable. That's what they're going to roll with. But to blame him for a crazy man that shoots up a mosque and saying it's his rhetoric that is enabling crazy white people to be white nationalists from another country? I mean, Sam Stein kind of sums up the media. It's a simple tweet. Imagine a world in which Muslim terrorist group had executed an attack that killed 50 people and the response from the president was to say, in essence, this isn't a big deal. It's just a small group of people. 
The entire world pointed out to him. Pulse. This article. 120 Christians slaughtered by Muslim herders in Nigeria. Nobody's reported it. It just happened this weekend. Obama did that. He called ISIS the JV. They killed tens of thousands of people. They drove down streets shooting people who were Muslim. So, I, you know, the president's statement, it's a small group of white nationalists, is actually really true. It isn't a big group of people. This isn't happening whole scale. And in this case, he is a Nazi fuck. And what he did was fucking horrible. But it's not indicative of the world. It's not a huge group of people. But the left and the media want to make it that way so they can scare people of color to go vote for Democrats. So they ratchet it up every time. And it's criminal. 120. One weekend. The same time this was happening. 120 Christians killed. Nobody cared. In 2018 alone... Thousands of Christians were killed by militant Fulani herdsmen, leaving some to say that genocide is occurring. On March 4th, Fulani militants in Bunu State reportedly attacked three villages, killing 23 people with bullets and machetes. Our media doesn't report that. They don't blame Omar, because that's what you, that's the same thing. She's Muslim, so she's to be blamed for it, right? Because somehow Trump's a KKK member. Didn't hear this one either. Baltimore woman strikes up a conversation with 11-year-old boy at a playground, then kills him. She's black. Never even made the media. If she was white, it'd be a total different story. MS-13 member accused of stabbing 16-year-old 100 times, setting body on fire. He was on a retainer, Jose Hernandez Zometa. Yeah, you didn't, didn't hear that, did you? Yeah, I didn't think you did. Dramatic video shows dozens of Central American migrants cutting and shoving their way through a hole in the California border fence. 52 migrants came in. In the area, Greyhound told U.S. officials to stop dropping off immigrants who have been released from custody inside its bus stations. They've had to kick them out because they keep on stealing and ripping shit off. And destroying property. That doesn't. That doesn't make it. No. No, you, you didn't hear that. Election fraud is real. California DMV is being audited in Fresno right now for mishandling voter registration info for twenty-three thousand drivers, double registering seventy-seven other seventy-seven thousand others, and giving sixteen-year-olds. Voter registration. That's in California. No problem with that, is there? None. It's already started. But the media not covering this is SOP now. They will take a New Zealand shooting that has nothing to do with us And they'll lose their goddamn mind. 
Uh, this one got, if you guessed that they w- would point the figure in American conservatives like Trump or Ben Shapiro for an attack that happened in another country at the hands of isolated madmen, then you're right. Westworld star Jeffrey Wright hopped on Twitter to blame the incident on Trump, waiting for remarks from real Trump on New Zealand's radical white racist terrorist attack, like waiting for Bin Laden's next cave video. Blood on his mouth once again, this is clear. Warmest wishes and condolence to victims. Wright made another Bin Laden crack. Bin Laden sends warmest sympathies and best wishes to all New Yorkers. Daily Show creator Liz Winstead unleashed her own hate for Trump family, slamming Trump Jr. For his tweet asking the media not to fixate on the killer, the unhinged abortion worshiper responded to the president's son tweet by saying, says the man who poses for a picture with the living beings he slaughtered for sport. Go fuck yourself. Because that's the same thing. Okay. Yeah. I'm not reading that. A.B. Sinkins. All of them. I mean, it was just all over Twitter. It was just all over Twitter. This guy, Vic Bergen. Ben Shapiro claims no responsibility for helping to radicalize the 2017 Quebec City Moss shooter, despite evidence that he did. Shapiro and members of the far right spread their hate nonstop and then play victim when a fan of theirs takes action. What? How did, what? It's a play though. It doesn't have to be truthful. You just got to lie. Shannon Watts. The NRA will likely go dark today after the mass shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand. But it's important to remember that the gun lobby, which is tentacles across the world, regularly foments hatred against Muslims in order to sell guns. Oh, really? They do, huh? So the NRA, which is in America, made this guy do it? Really? Jeet here. America is to white nationalism what Saudi Arabia is to jihadism. Michael Skolknik, a reporter, Christchurch Mosque, Tree of Life, Mother Emanuel, Oak Creek Sick, Overland Park Jewish Center, Islamic Center, Quebec City, white supremacist. I never see that for the tens of thousands of people killed by ISIS, nor the attacks in America. What we got from the left during the attacks in America that were lefties is that it's our fault. They're just misunderstood Islamists, like Omar. AOC, all of these are terrorist incidents. We have a responsibility to understand how white supremacy online radicalization works because it's impacting our entire society. President Trump defunded federal programs designed to fight the spread of white supremacist hate groups. So he's to blame. Okay. Then she tried this. Daily reminder that we have a Muslim ban in the country made out of presence hostility towards Muslim people. That's totally incorrect. It's not a Muslim ban. It was never called a Muslim ban. She's called out on it. Then she spun it this way. At first, I thought of saying, imagine being told your house of faith isn't safe anymore. But I can't say imagine because of Charleston, Pittsburgh, Sutherland Springs. What good are your thoughts and prayers when they don't even keep the pews safe? Everybody showed her pictures of her wearing ashes last week, which must have been alive because she wasn't. And then she went out to the NRA, too. All of them. Neon Taser. 
Thoughts and prayers is your automatic, formulatic response to everything, say the people talking about the NRA after shooting in New Zealand. Not religious, and I don't pray, so I feel no emotional connection to the idea of prayer. But when someone says they're praying for me, and I feel the sincerity of their sentiment, I can be emotionally impacted by it just for that reason. The point is the emotion, not the words. But they attack that. The thoughts of prayers was attacked all over Twitter. Don't worry, I'm building to a point. Louis Gomer, the shooting at the New Zealand mosque are egregious, reprehensible. There are courts, dispute resolutions, and legislatures to resolve controversies. There's no place for cold blood murders. I don't even know what that means. Linda Sasser went on a thing, I'm triggered by those piling on Representative Omar, and that's what caused these attacks. Planned Parenthood, Islamophobia is real, white supremacy is real, hatred is real. From New Zealand to the U.S. or no matter where you live, we deserve better. We all deserve to live free from fear and violence. But come over here and we'll kill some babies. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then this soundbite. The left has pushed kids so much, they want to trade Trump for a brutal dictator. Would you trade Trump for Maduro? Yeah, one of. I mean, I think Trump. Um, I think Maduro was democratically elected. Probably, yeah, sure. More than likely, yes, of course. If there's a Nicolas Maduro out here who's going to bring us uh, to revolution, I will support that movement. I would rather have a bus driver in charge than than a billionaire. Okay, let's put it that way. Nicolas Maduro could come and be our president. Yeah. Oh, any day. Any day. Look, he said all the check marks are there. He's not white. Okay, he's a minority. Okay, he looks a little too much like Saddam Hussein, though. Let the Venezuelan people uh, solve the problems of their own country for themselves. The U.S. needs to stay out of it and mind its own business. Are you Venezuelan or do you have family? No, so I'm actually Colombian. No, <laughs> no I was born in Louisiana. No, I'm from New York State. <laughs> I consider myself Venezuela because I am Colombian. This is the same countries that have been divided by the same people, by the, by the same regime, which is the United States government that has been over 100 years in our countries. Uh, were you all organizing when the Obama administration had slapped some sanctions on some officials in Venezuela? Because this has been going on for a while. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of anti-war because we... It, Obama wasn't calling for intervention in Venezuela. I was absolutely opposed to it. Um, I wasn't in the country at the time, um, but yeah, I was. I was definitely not for not for that. Under Obama, there was U.S. military intervention all throughout Africa. <laughs> Bombs dropped in Somalia every day, and so I don't support uh, uh, U.S. military intervention, no matter the president. You think that uh, Venezuela would be better off if we just left, you know, Maduro in, in charge? 100%. You know, right, uh, just to reiterate, we've uh, our sanctions have cost the economy uh, built 40, almost $40 billion. Okay, so tell me about Hands Off Venezuela and why you're out here today. 
Hands Off Venezuela is a protest against U.S. intervention in Venezuela. Uh, John Bolton, Elliot Abrams, they have a history of uh, escalating conflicts in the region to the point where uh, U.S. actually military intervenes. So that's what we want to uh, prevent. Well, I saw the movement you know, through social media, um, and I'm just out here to show solidarity um, you know, with, with a country and them exercising their right for sovereignty um, and, you know, to try to resist um, American, you know, aggression. The humanitarian crisis that's happening in Venezuela is caused by the U.S. government. If they just ease the sanctions or release the sanctions, uh, Venezuelan people can take care of their own people. By time the left spun everybody up, Twitter spun everybody up, the whole left rage machine was blaming every person who isn't a person of color, every gun owner, every Trump voter, every white person in the South. They then went after Chelsea Clinton. Yeah, no shit. After all that you have done and all this on the podium. This, this, this right here is the result of a massacre stoked by people like you and the words that you put out into the world. And I want you to know that, and I want you to feel that deep inside. Forty-nine people died because of the rhetoric that you put out there. I don't think. What does "I'm sorry" you feel that we mean? What does that mean? Chelsea Clinton is here in NYU Vigil right now. A lot of students feel uncomfortable. People haven't forgotten the Islamophobic mob she incited against Omar. There is no sense of responsibility. My best friend V. Falastian told Chelsea Clinton that it's a disgrace that she came to a vigil calling out Chelsea's Islamophobia and hypocrisy. All the comments are conservatives going, I feel very uncomfortable Defending Hillary Clinton? But what the fuck? Huffington Post reporter Ashley Feinberg. Chelsea Clinton is an enormously powerful and influential person. It's okay for a grieving college student to yell at her. BuzzFeed said, hold our beer or our chai latte. We confronted Chelsea Clinton at the Christchurch vigil. Here's why. Yesterday we posted a video, this is no shit, they gave them an op-ed. Video of Lean confronting Chelsea Clinton at a vigil for victims of white supremacists. Today we woke up to 100,000 people talking about it on Twitter. Needless to say, this is not what we expected. We went to the vigil for one reason, to grieve the loss of innocent lives that were stolen from this world by vile hatred. We don't do this when uh, you know ISIS attacks people or Muslims attack people because they're our allies. Oh, wait a minute, I added that. We wanted to join our friends and colleagues in a time of heartbreak and agony for 49 Muslims who were murdered for being Muslim. As a Jewish American Israeli and a Palestinian Muslim, oh, there it is, we understand far too well the consensus consequences of anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim bigotry, and white supremacy. And we defend Omar. You see how it works? And as activists who are unafraid to speak the truth, we know we have a duty to call out any bigotry wherever it exists. 
We did a double take when we first noticed Chelsea there. Just weeks before this tragedy, blah, 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 they're breaking it. We believe that Elon Omar did nothing except challenge the status quo, blah, 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 blah. We were shocked. So when we saw Sean, I'm paraphrasing this because this is just a fucking diatribe of stupid. Um, so when we saw Chelsea, we saw an opportunity to have her ear and front her on her false charge of anti-Semitism against our only black Muslim Somali and refugee member of Congress. We took our chance to speak truth to power because they love saying that phrase. Chelsea hurt our fight against white supremacy when she stood up to petty weaponizers of anti-Semitism. Oh, that's nice. We know that our only safety is through solidarity. The fight against anti-Muslim bigotry is a fight against anti-Semitism, is a fight against racism, is a fight against white supremacy. It's intersectionality. Boom, 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 boom. When someone attacks one of us, they attack us all. Oh, really? That's not what Alyssa Milano and fucking um, Deborah Messing are told. Many have said it was unfair to connect Chelsea's word to the massacre in Christchurch. To them, we say that anti-Muslim bigotry must be addressed wherever it exists. This is not about left and right. This is about people who do and do not have power and how those with power use it. A reality is that many people aren't doing enough to fight anti-Muslim bigotry. Omar is awesome. Blah, blah, blah. But we are not deterred. This is a turning point in white supremacy and anti-Muslim bigotry must be defeated. It begins with keeping our own accountable. Our hearts are with the Muslim community and the victims of families. We will continue to fight for justice for everyone. Rose Asaf is a senior at New York University where she studies comparative politics and American studies. She's an Israeli-American Jewish woman, and she co-founded the Jewish Voice for Peace chapter at NYU. How far are they taking this? Omar, Inala Elawa in Elia Rahun. This is chilling news to wake up in the face of horror. I'm mourning with and holding our community extra close today. We will not live in fear. I will be with Juma today, and I hope others will too. Juma Mabarak. The Hill said, Ilyan Omar tweeted this. What is a Muslim verse? Why did you have to need to single it out? And more importantly, are Muslims not allowed to say a prayer for our dead? This is lazy and othering. Do better. Askafarila. The woman spends all her time not talking about her Americanism, her Islamism. All she does is push Islam at every turn and every tweet and every talk. All she does is pushes everybody's Islamophobic. Her being is Islam, Muslim, and that's fine. But when a media pointed out they're othering, I tweeted, or you other yourself all the time. You other everybody who's not a Muslim because you fucking hate non-Muslims because you're Islamist. I probably got banned off Twitter. I haven't checked to see if I have, but I'm sure I will. So what's my point? Every time there's an attack on one of the intersectional class, the media, Twitter, social media, everybody, rip it up to stage 900. It turns into a shark freeding frenzy where Chelsea Clinton, a pregnant woman, gets verbally assaulted. Others get physically assaulted. People get chased out of restaurants, etc., etc., But all we talk about is the white supremacy online. 
I've said it a million times. I've never seen white supremacy online. It's not tolerated on Facebook. It's not tolerated on for frickin' Twitter. Never saw it on MySpace. There's no Google search suggestions for white supremacy, even though I've never Googled it. I don't see white supremacy online. I know it's there. I know there's a bunch of hate sites. But for every hate site, there's a hate site for Islamists. For every hate site, there is a BLM site saying the same thing. It's tit for tat. And I see more reaction to liberal hate than white supremacy. But all we talk about is white supremacy because we're projecting over what we're doing. You have brainwashed kids that think the planet's going to end in 12 years. They walked out of school and went on a strike. You have people roaming looking for anybody with mega hats and beating the shit out of them, assaulting them and grabbing them and throwing their hats and doing all this crazy shit, running them out of restaurants, protesting them anywhere they are with leaders telling them to do that. There's no place on the internet you can speak about anything other but in sexuality without getting banned from Twitter. This colloquial intersectionality has taken over our world where she said it, that crazed out, I don't know what I am, Palestinian Jewish person, which I think is a ruse because she's a Muslim. When one of ours is attacked, we're all attacked. And we will attack and blame everybody else, dance on graves, and we'll be supported by the American media who are doing it also. That clip, I wasn't even going to play, but I played it on purpose. That a president of the United States, who is not the greatest guy in the world, and yes, he will not call out forcefully, like Obama, white supremacy. Blamed for an attack in New Zealand. That was the response. I ask you, where is the respect for the president, of the, uh, the office of the president of the United States that we heard about in Obama? And as we go out to music break, I'm going to play Chuck Todd. He got crushed because he brought up, why didn't Obama get the country together? He's the one that ran on it, and he didn't do it. Chuck Todd's not going to say the truth. You know why we're here? You know why we have Trump? Barack Hussein Obama. He got on the fucking bully pulpit, spent every minute othering everybody else. His whole campaign was on intersectionality. If I said it once, I said it a million times. I couldn't go to his website. There was no white guy. They had tabs for everything but white. American. Some classification that wasn't a protected class in his leadership. He then went about making policies that only took care of his base and punishing everybody else. That's what he did. 
And in the end, he was the most divisive president we ever had. From Jump Street to the end. Divisive. When he was wrong, he was never called out for it. From Reverend Wright to the dickhead that got got in a fight with the police and they had the beer summit to Trayvon Martin to Michael Brown. Wrong. But he got on the TV and he told people to go out in their house coat and slippers if they had to and take it to the streets. He formed BLM. He formed ISIS with his feckless foreign policy. He's the only sitting American president allowed people to use weapons of mass destruction and did nothing to stop it. He let the fucking Muslim spring or whatever the fuck we ended up calling that shit take down governments we sat and watched and the power vacuum is worse, people. He allowed ISIS to take over 30% of the Middle East and watched it. And every day I did not see him get blamed for the tens of thousands of Muslims murdered by ISIS the Christians that other sect in Israel or in uh, Iraq that we had to go rescue some of them I never saw any of that but he allowed it but one crazed gunman who's a racist who did a heinous thing now that's Trump's fault That's the NRA's fault. That's white people's fault. That's gun owners' fault. But we're supposed to worry about the online presence of white supremacy? Understand, something's going to happen. It's going to be buried in the media, but somebody's going to react off this. Sure as shit. And if, unfortunately, another Muslim attacks Americans, it'll be the same spin from all these people. Well, it's Trump's fault because he did this, they let that happen, and it's our policy, and it's okay. We had seven Islamic attacks under Obama's administration. He was blamed not once, nor should he have. There are a bunch of church shooting just recently, where black people killed white people. Nobody was blamed for it, nor should they have. Al Sharpton shouldn't shouldn't have been blamed. Joy Reid shouldn't be blamed. Nobody should be blamed for the crazy. But my point is, it isn't right-leaning crazy on the internet. It's left-leaning crazy. If anybody's getting ideas, it's from the left, not the right. It is state-approved. It is social media-approved. It's media-approved. Those people are others. They're un-American. They're less than. And to twist Eon Omar, a fucking hateful Islamist, and attack Chelsea Clinton? Can you see my point? 
You got that fired up about a one-off shooting that you attacked a pregnant Clinton. Sweet God, you people are unhinged. And you're violent. To a music break. And then, hey, tweets. A fiddler on the roof. Sounds crazy, no? But here, in our little village of Anatevka, you might say every one of us is a fiddler on the roof. Trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking his neck. It isn't easy. You may ask, why do we stay up there if it's so dangerous? Well, we stay because Anatevka is our home. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition! of our traditions we've kept our balance for many many years here in Anatevka we have traditions for everything how to sleep how to eat how to work how to wear clothes For instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our tradition, Every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. One day and night must scramble for a living, feed a wife and children, say his daily prayers, and who has the right as master of the house to have the final word at home?
poking at the media bubble, one podcast at a time. Here's Tony Reed. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Hey, tweet of the day! Chuck Tat blames Obama for America's division. Why couldn't he bring this country together? NBC host Chuck Todd suggested on Sunday that the U.S. is divided politically because former President Barack Obama failed to bring this country together. While speaking with Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke on Meet the Press, Todd asked the 2020 contender about healing the country's political divide. You aren't the first candidate to say, I'm going to bring this country together, Todd told O'Rourke. The most recent Democratic president, a lot of people put their hope in him and thought he was the answer that was going to do that. Why do you think that didn't happen in Obama's eight years, the NBC host queried. I know that President Obama worked incredibly hard to find common ground with Republicans, O'Rourke replied. He was able to achieve a heck of a lot in those eight years. Dutch journalist and historian Rutger Bregman seized on that, tweeting on Sunday, Quote, the real radicals in the Democratic Party are the so-called centrists who don't support Medicare for all, higher taxes on the rich, free tuition, legalizing marijuana and the Green New Deal. They are completely out of touch with the electorate. Rutger Bregman joins me now. Thank you for being with us. It's great to be here. Uh, what do you mean by that, that the, the real radicals are the centrists? These are utterly mainstream positions, and it's good, it's good news that now it's finally moving into the mainstream. But that's, that's what most Americans want. So it seems to me pretty bizarre that we call these people who, uh, who are against that, that we call them moderates? There has been a lack uh, of control over the language of this. In that yeah. Over the last few years, um, we've been able to, to, to talk about progressive policies, even as progressive policies. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I, mean, I tell people $15 a, a, an hour minimum wage isn't really all that much money. No, no, no. It's not I, some wild radical plan. You know, I must say from a European perspective, this whole debate in America about capitalism versus socialism, it seems rather ridiculous, to be honest. It shouldn't be a left versus right thing or a progressive versus conservative thing. It's just common sense. You should read this. There's actually a lot in here that I want to talk to you about. Uh, Utopia for Realists is Rutger uh, Bergman's uh, book, uh, how, the w how We Can Build the Ideal World. It's got a lot of interesting suggestions. Will you come back and we can have some conversations about the details in there? Sure. All right. Thank you. Yeah, that's another this week uh, with uh, George Snuffberger and company saying the country's more towards the left. Really? You sure on that? Because that, that bubble sure seems to make you forget what 2016 was like. Next one was a former time writer. Lance Morrow mocks the left for booting Fox News. This is the guy that defended Bill Clinton's little sex capade with Monica Lewinsky. Yeah. That's if you lost Time magazine, you're probably wrong. USA Today discontinue lazy excuse for patriotism anthem. Whole nother article about Kaepernick the whole nine yards. 
saying we shouldn't do the national anthem. The Star Spangled Banner should give way to ensuring our veterans have adequate health care. You know, it's the only time you care about vets' health care is when there's a conservative. But um, under Obama, that's how we got the two-year log jam, you dickheads. And I saved it for this section because I'm not doing a fire for effect today. Here's Tucker addressing that crazy shit about Caruso being a fucking bigot, sexist, transphobe, and man, his excuse is lame. March 14th. Chris Hayes is an anchor over on MSNBC, the one with the glasses. Hayes' political views aren't very interesting, cringing hipster sensitivity burnished with low-grade academic buzzwords. Pretty banal stuff. But Hayes always seemed like a decent guy personally. He didn't seem like a hater. It was hard to imagine him promoting open racism or anti-Semitism. Or at least it was hard to imagine until the other night. That's when Hayes invited a man called Angelo Carasone onto his show. Carasone runs Media Matters. Almost every day, he issues outrage press releases accusing other people of bigotry. And yet, because everything is irony, Carasone is himself an enthusiastic bigot. We know this for sure because he has written about it extensively. It turns out that for years, Carasone maintained a racist blog. One post entitled, quote, Trainee Paradise, addressed a crime story from Thailand. A Bangladeshi man had been robbed and assaulted by a group of male prostitutes dressed as women. Carasone objected to the idea that this was even a story and ridiculed South Asians as inherently ugly and poor. Quote, is the writer a tranny lover too? Or perhaps he's just trying to justify how these trannies trick this Bangladeshi in the first place. Look, man, we don't need to know whether or not they were attractive. The effing guy was Bangladeshi. What the hell was he doing with $7,300 worth of stuff? The guy's Bangladeshi. End quote. In another post, Carasone described how a male coach at a Japanese high school had sexually abused female players. People in Japan were horrified by this, understandably. Carasone was not. His advice, quote, lighten up, Japs. Later that month, Carasone, by now in a frenzy of racism, heaped praise on a former Ku Klux Klan leader. In still another post from the same period, Carasone described a Jewish man as being handsome, quote, despite his Jewry. Carasone didn't like the man's political views, but attributed them to, quote, his possession of several bags of Jewish gold, end quote. Jewish gold. According to Angela Carasone, Jewish gold is a problem. Media Matters probably ought to issue a press release about this. They've done a lot more for a lot less. And yet somehow, and this is the remarkable part, Chris Hayes managed to pretend that none of this ever happened. Hayes never mentioned the Jewish gold. He never said a word about the Japs or the trannies or the Klan or even those dirty Bangladeshis who deserve what they get no matter what the tranny lovers say. None of that. Instead, Hayes gave cover to Carasone's bigotry and anti-Semitism. Amazingly, he even directed his viewers to Carasone's website. Angela Carasone, of course, all that uh, can be found at Media Matters website, so you can listen to the full clips, get the full context. Right. Pretty amazing. If a guy with a history of ranting about Jewish gold came on your show, would you ask him about it? Would you challenge him on it? How could you not? You'd feel morally obligated. But Chris Hayes didn't. That tells you a lot. 
Now, to be clear, we're not calling for either of these people to be imprisoned or executed or even fired from their high-paying jobs. We're not planning to organize an advertiser boycott against them. We won't picket their offices with bullhorns. We won't attack their children. But we do think you should know what they're actually like. And in Chris Hayes' case, it's kind of depressing to find out. Turns out you really never know who people are. Joe Concha writes about media for The Hill, and he joins us tonight. So, Joe, if you went on someone's show to talk about how someone had said naughty things 15 years ago, but you had kept a blog in which you used <laughs> the kind of stereotypes and racial attacks that this guy had and referred to Jewish gold and the Japs, I mean, wouldn't at some point you think this is too hypocritical, I can't do this? I would think that would happen if I knew that the interviewer would challenge me on those things. And apparently... Uh, Angelo Carasoni knew that probably in advance that wouldn't happen. And with Chris Hayes' case, it's a classic case of pushing a narrative by engaging in the worst kind of bias, the bias of omission. A disservice completely to MSNBC viewers for, for not showing that. By the way, The Hill has reached out uh, to the Media Matters president for comment, as have many other news organizations, uh, and he isn't talking. But then again, Tucker, you have to feel sorry for him. I mean, how would you feel if somebody went back into your past and talked about the things that you said 10 or 15 years ago and then demanded that you get taken? <laughs> off the air. I mean, I, I mean, you got to feel sorry for the guy. <laughs> I do. It would be tough. It would be really tough. I mean, look, I yeah. just want to be absolutely clear. I don't care what he wrote on his dumb blog. He's a terrible writer, by the way. I should say that he's kind of dumb. But I don't care. I don't care at all. If he hurt an actual person, that would interest me. His dumb opinions interest right. me not at all. So I'm not in any way suggesting that he or anybody else should be punished for what he wrote on some dumb blog 15 years ago. But that's because I'm not a progressive and I'm not hysterical. And, and, but and I just I wonder and I don't why. Care. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, who cares? But how can you use this guy as an expert witness on bigotry with a blog like that? Well, you can't. And, and look, there are even people on the left, Tucker, that are talking about how obscene this is, these fishing expeditions. There's a leftist writer named Freddie DeBoer. He's as left as you are right. Came up with this phenomenal phrase. It's called offense archaeology. And he says, go to any space concerned with social justice, you know, and you'll find endless surveillance. Everyone is to be judged. Everyone is under suspicion. He goes on to say that that's what liberalism is now. The search for baddies doing bad things like little offense archaeologists. Great saying digging deeper and deeper and deeper to find out who's good and who's bad. Nobody likes this, Tucker, on the left or the right, going back into people's past and finding things to destroy their careers. And that's one of the reasons why the actions Hollywood taped didn't I resonate mean, with President Trump. Yeah. Well, it's just, and it's disgusting, that whole thing, that way of thinking. But very quick, you've been in this business a long time. I have, too. If there's one group of people who shouldn't be throwing stones about their personal lives, probably the National Press Corps, right? Well, of course. No one. Look, we all have done bad things, and we could all go back and find something that's bad. The bottom line is, with Media Matters, they have no leg to stand on here because when MSNBC's Joy Reid made homophobic, anti-Semitic comments, they said it didn't meet the threshold for them to call for oh, yeah. boycotts of her. And now, obviously, that's that's what's happening with you. And meanwhile, you made some of your statements while you were at MSNBC, and maybe that yeah, was the reason why whatever. it didn't cause a ripple. When you did make them on national radio. It wasn't like you said it in private. It was called on tape somewhere. These were said on national radio. It's amazing. To be clear, they fired me. I couldn't have stayed. Joe, great to see you tonight. Thank you very much. All right. Have a good one. We're out of time. Back tomorrow. Show that's the sworn enemy of lying, pomposity, smugness, and group. 
So it wasn't just Chris Hayes. Brian Seltzer brought him on. And this guy basically plays it off that I was hit and I was messed with. I was bullied because I was a fat kid. And I was just doing satire. Totally defended him. Stephen Miller. People who would usually be enraged and tizzy over old blog posts about Jews and trannies all use MMFA for sourcing. It's that simple, which is fine. But don't tell me you're a firefighter doing journalism. And it should tell you something about the fact that those people use MF, MMFA to begin with and feel the need to provide cover for them every time they moralize to you about how democracy dies in apples and bananas. MMFA is a left-wing smear merchant, and admittedly so, given cover by CNN and NBC to pretend they are journalistic news outlets, and MMFA isn't the problem here. The problem is who they draw influence from. So, this week alone, we find the guy going after Tucker's full of shit. He's a bigot. SPLC, the other source they use, fires their guy. I mean, sweet Jesus. No retribution. No freaking out. No protest. It just seems like the left's a bunch of fucking hypocrites. London lefty, Scott Mann. Every knife sold in the UK should have a GPS tracker fitted in the handle. It's time we had a national database like we do with guns. If you're carrying it around, you had better have a bloody good explanation. Obvious exemption for fishing. It's going to happen here. And, and then we got Alyssa Milano. I got to play this because I just listening to this lady makes me want to punch something. Hi. So for two years, this administration has been hell-bent on uh, blocking people's health and rights. And they just did it again with the worst hit yet. The administration announced a gag rule that destroys Title X, the National Family Planning Program that 4 million people a year rely on for affordable birth control and reproductive health care. So the rule makes it illegal for doctors, nurses, uh, and staff at healthcare centers to talk to patients about their, their full range of reproductive options, including abortion. That's right. They would all be gagged. If you mentioned or referred to abortion, you can say goodbye to your Title X funding. And just so you know, anyone who has gotten birth control, HIV or STI testing and treatment or a pap test for free or on a sliding scale at a Planned Parenthood or some other health center can probably thank the Title X program. It is so vital. Healthcare is a human right. We need to protect Title X. So please share this video, educate people, empower people on how we need to save Title X and then do everything you can, everything in your power to contact your representatives and tell them to save Title X. Thank you so much for watching. Problem is an organization says uh, she's full of shit. The new Title X rule does not refuse a physician talk about abortion. He can list it as one of many options. You just can't refer, perform, promote, or express support for abortion. If a woman wants to know the risks, the physician is free to do so. Planned Parenthood being an abortion-promoting entity eliminates itself from Title X by this rule. Millions of women can access Title X coverage of FQHCs and have nothing to do with surgical abortion. King Codes. 
Said it forever. Planned Parenthood really cared about women. They would split their business in two. Half does abortion, half doesn't. She lies. That's what it is. To our tweets of the day. Lindsey Graham calling for investigations and starting committees to look into the Hilton, the Hillary Clinton bullshit. But our tweet tweet of the day came from the Daily Wire. And I love it. Ocasio-Cortez explodes after learning her unfavorable rating has skyrocketed. Socialist Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's unfavorable rating has skyrocketed now that she has become more well-known. According to a new poll from left-leaning Gallup, the poll released on Friday found that the increase in AOC unfavorable rating in recent months has been more than doubled her increase in favorable Half the U.S. adults were unfamiliar with her, had no opinion of her in September after a seismic primary went over the summer. But the figure has shrunk to 29% today. Gallup reported, but the increased visibility has not improved her overall standing with Americans. In September, AOC favorable versus unfavorable was deadlocked at 24-26. Now it stands at 31-41. Gallup further noted that Ocasio-Cortez's favorable rating was underwater among the majority of groups and was only viewed as favorable among 56% of Democrats. The congresswoman is viewed negatively by most Republicans, of whom 73% have an unfavorable view of her, up from 52% in September. AOC is also underwater in her net favorable ratings among men, 24, negative, whites, negative 24, and 55 and older, negative 24. I mean, shit, she's just fucking dropped off the bottom. And this is the left-leaning, all right? AOC did not respond well to the news, which is typical of her. She normally reacts to criticism by playing the victim card or claiming that there are conspiracy theories, foolish nonsense, or she attacks the source. If you want to know what subconscious bias looks like, it's headlines saying AOC is underwater with every group except women, non-whites, and 18 to 34-year-olds. So older conservative white men are considered everyone and everyone else is discontinued as an exception. Cool. That was her tweet. That was her tweet. She played it off. Other tweet. The reason people know more is because Fox News has turned into AOC TMZ. No offense to TMZ. So awareness is growing with GOPers. Jane Meyer, New Yorker, has reported deeply on this propaganda machine. It will be aimed at any dim they want. Nothing changes that. But within the outliers, it's her shit like the bank and the Green New Deal. Those are why the people didn't like her. So it has nothing to do with your race, your gender. It's your idiocy. And for that, America finally waking up to this moron. She gets our tweet of the day. Yeah, I mean, I think you brought up, they are getting a lot of play. It doesn't mean they represent everybody. Look, they won their district. They represent their district. They bring energy that's the positive. My one recommendation to Democrats, if you look back in uh, the last 25 years, one of the most important things President Clinton did was pass his first budget. And there was a senator from Nebraska who was the key vote. When President Obama passed health care, the most significant social policy since Medicare and Medicaid, 
a Nebraska senator was the key vote in the U.S. Senate. So it is important to have the energy that uh, some of the freshman members are bringing. Uh, but you should remember, this is a big country with a lot of diversity, and we want Democrats from all parts of the country. And I don't think you should be putting any of your uh, majority members that one in marginal districts where they have to be responding to what a person out of Queens or out of uh, uh, Minnesota, uh, suburban uh, Minneapolis, is mm -hmm. saying. They should be able to be talking about what they're legislating on, prescription drug cost control, transportation bills, what they're doing for veterans. That is the core issues we want on. Get to what you want on because that's how you're going to win in 2020. It should not be about issues that to distract from what you want on. And you had a pledge to the voters and that's what we have to do. That's number one. Number two, a lot of what, you know, Donald Trump told us what he was going to do. He's going to call us socialists. Don't serve up slow pitches over the center of the plate act, acting to type. I think it's a real mm -hmm. mistake. Um, mm -hmm. And then the candidates through the process, the third point I'd make, through the presidential process will reveal themselves. It is less about ideology, although ideas matter in politics, and it is more about the character of the person. And there are seminal moments that will reveal that character. ...consume us, or they will afford us the greatest opportunity to unleash the genius of the United States of America. In other words, this moment of peril produces perhaps the greatest moment of promise for this country and for everyone inside of it. We can begin by fixing our democracy and ensuring that our government works for... ...ahead of Ted Cruz yet? Uh-uh! By the way, where'd you meet him? Generous. He's taking on the GOP. You get the picture? Yes, we see. And Beto does it without a super black. Here he comes now. He's married with kids, but he's still my man. Man, man. He played guitar in a rock and roll band. Like Bernie Sanders, but he's got a tan. There's nobody my Beto compares to. Yes, Beto 
has come out. This is just the most embarrassing shit ever. First of all, it was Rom talking shit about the Idiotos, which I thought was pretty fucking good. And part of the rollout video where his wife is grabbing his... It is just awkward. And that last thing's a real video for him. They're, they're trying to get the hope and changey going again. And the funny thing is, as I put this together over the last four days, it starts with a media orgasm you're about to hear and ends with CNN, which we'll play in a bit, tagging he's white. Oh no, that's a horrible thing. Good morning to you, George. So Beto O'Rourke is now the 15th Democrat to put his name in the hat. He's expected to hold his first official campaign event here in Iowa a little bit later today, and he promises to run a very positive campaign. Amy and I are happy to share with you that I'm running to serve you as the next president of the United States of America. This morning, Beto O'Rourke is joining the 2020 fray. The only way for us to live up to the promise of America is to give it our all. The former Texas congressman skyrocketing onto the national political scene when a Senate race caught fire in 2018. Thank you, El Paso. Thank you, Texas. Despite his loss to Ted Cruz, the rock and roll loving 46-year-old caught the nation's attention. His offbeat social media posts appealing to a younger generation, even taking a skateboarding at Whataburger. His Senate candidacy winning the endorsement of celebrities like Beyonce. And now he's appearing on the cover of Vanity Fair, the star politician weighing his options, saying, you can probably tell that I want to run. But until now, his indecision on a White House bid even left many, including Oprah, asking the question. By God, when are you going to know the answer? (laughs) When I caught up with him at a Dallas rally in October, he told me he would never run. Is there a scenario where you run for president in 2020 or beyond? No. 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 Unequivocally, you will never run for president. No punto. Uh, No period. I guess things have changed. You know, conservatives have called him a shiny new penny, and they are already coming for him, saying that he drips with white male privilege and wealth. And some Democrats, George, are wondering whether or not he's the street fighter that they want or need. But there will be two big parts of his platform. Those will be health care for all and climate change. Breaking news. It's official. The high-profile Democrat announcing his presidential bid this morning. The big name in the Democratic Party making his White House run official this morning. So, what's with all the buzz behind Beto O'Rourke? After months of hinting at a presidential run in 2020, former Democratic Congressman Beto O'Rourke just made it official. He is in. Beto O'Rourke's announcement that he's entering the 2020 race will shake up the Democratic primary. Beto O'Rourke making it official. The former Texas congressman announcing he's running for president. O'Rourke saying the interconnected crises of the economy, the climate, and the nation's democracy have never been greater. The latest hint O'Rourke was ready to run, coming in a glossy Vanity Fair spread overnight, captured by celebrity photographer Annie Leibovitz. O'Rourke saying, I'm just born to do this. He got a very favorable profile in Vanity Fair with a pho- photograph from probably the most famous photographer on the planet, Annie Leibovitz. Annie, so yeah. he's had a glowing start, but campaigns are long, brutal, and grim. So it's going to be a long road. Yeah, and it is worth noting that his voting record has skewed more to the center than progressive. So mm-hmm. the internal debate within the party will continue. Despite the defeat, O'Rourke raised more than $80 million for his Senate campaign, a record sum 
for a Senate contest. And he did it in part by putting virtually every moment of his campaign on social media. Since the campaign, he's even taken followers along to the dentist. It was quite a reveal. So we'll see here today in this southeastern corner of Iowa whether what O'Rourke was able to do by capturing the imaginations of Texas voters, even though he lost, resonates across the country. And as we send it back to New York, Gail, I know you have some news in regards to all this. I do, Ed. And may I just say your voice sounds a little better. I hope you feel better. That, I hope you feel as good as you look. I'll just say that. You're absolutely right. As soon as the show is over, getting on a plane heading to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, maybe I'll see you on the road out there later today. We're going to sit down with Beto O'Rourke later in Iowa for his only national TV interview about his decision to run for president. And you can see that tomorrow. We like when we can say this only on CBS This Morning. He sat down with Oprah, posed for Vanity Fair. But today, for the first time ever, Beto O'Rourke came here to Iowa to talk to voters. Hey, everybody! What's up? The former congressman swarmed with cameras. Just hours earlier, he'd announced his presidential campaign, his wife Amy by his side. This is a defining moment of truth for this country and for every single one of us. O'Rourke burst onto the national scene last year with his vigorous challenge to Senator Ted Cruz, electrifying massive crowds, sharing his life on Instagram. At times, perhaps oversharing. Um, so, I'm here at the dentist. Still, his supporters are confident his energy can lift him even higher. Like he did in Texas, Beto O'Rourke kept a small footprint on his first day on the presidential campaign trail, hey, hey, even driving his own car. Why'd you choose to start in this corner of the state? This is a very important part of America um, that isn't listened to often enough. It's his first ever trip to Iowa. Along with his name, voters are still learning what the former three-term congressman from El Paso stands for, including universal health care, a pathway to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, and universal background checks for gun buyers. A recent poll of Iowa Democrats put O'Rourke in fifth place behind former Vice President Joe Biden, who's expected to join the race next month, and three senators. That's a decent start for the 46-year-old who lost the Senate race last year. But it's the fact that he lost by only three points in ruby red Texas and how he did it that has won him fans nationwide and worries other Democratic campaigns. He traveled with a small team, never hired consultants, and raised a record $80 million. His popularity stems in part from his constant use of social media, even during a dental clean. Remember, all this positive is the beginning. Then we start trickling stuff. Matt Mikowski, Reuters knew O'Rourke was a member of the secret hacking group, but agreed not to publish until after Senate race. Reuters admits they had a story on all of Beto O'Rourke's old writings and interviewed him about it in 2017, but agreed to sit on it until after O'Rourke's Senate run against Cruz. Does that sound familiar? This sounds all so familiar. It is, it's almost like Obama, isn't it? It's so much like Obama. Because they just let it go. Here's the next thing. After more than a year reporting, men persuaded O'Rourke to talk on the record. In an interview in late 2017, O'Rourke acknowledged that he was a member of a group on an understanding that the information would never be made public until after the Senate raid. A.G. Khan. The last thing the press is supposed to do is hold back on a story to help a politician. This is a pretty reprehensible thing to do. 
But they always do it. They did it for Obama. In rolls in Mr. Fucking Media Watchdog, Brian Seltzer. Reporters are writing books sometimes, hold back. Certainly info till their book comes out. That's what the reporter says happened in this case. Book deal situations are definitely complicated. The Fox Stormy, oh, that's it. But Fox. But Fox. Yeah. He got a Vanity Fair cover. I'm just born to do this. I'm not even going to read this shit. It is basically like he is the next, uh, the next coming of Christ. It's the same fucking shit. We want this guy really bad. He's awesome. Whole article. Journalists go bonkers for Beto. But who needs a stretch of political victories to build momentum for a presidential run when you have a gale force win in the form of liberal media hype? The media's Beto mania began in February 2018 when the New York Times' Michael Tackett fantasized about O'Rourke's Senate campaign embodying a sense of the possible. The turn Texas blue dream continued on the late show with Stephen Colbert in April. 50, uh, Frank Bruni factuated about it. But, I mean, here's a list. Post-election day lost. ABC spins Beto losses a victory. Beto effect still in effect. Cohen could Robin Roberts, yes, O'Rourke lost. But we're hearing about the Beto effect is still in effect. Paula Ferris. Yeah, we sure are. Texas Democrats are hoping for a victory instead got hope for 2020. It's almost like Hillary, Obama. Run, Beto, run. Chris Matthews. Let me finish it out with a strong suggestion. It's that Beto O'Rourke should run for president. The next Lincoln. O'Rourke has not compared himself to Abraham Lincoln outright, but that hasn't stopped others from noting some similarities as they muse about his potential presidential run. Those who might dismiss the Lincoln-O'Rourke analogy do well to scoff. This came from Mark Perry. In an article on political, Beto has a path to the presidency. Lincoln's. The next Obama correspondent, Morgan Rafford on NBC Today. Despite big-name stars like Bradley Cooper and Michael Jordan, it's her, Oprah Winfrey, conversation with rising political star O'Rourke that generate all the buzz. O'Rourke made national headlines when he nearly unseated. He didn't nearly. It wasn't even close. His record-breaking fundraising and grassroots support leading some to call him the new Obama. Excited by a sense of the possible. Hyping his 2018 race. That's Mike Tackett. He's going to turn Texas blue with the power of his rocking. Whole gross article. Rooting for Beto Amendum uh, was correspondent Ed Lavender. Uh, Beto struck by the toothy progressive. Count me among the swelling ranks of the effectuated. I, too, have been Beto struck. That's uh, Colin O'Sprank Bruni. If he's, is he the next JFK or Obama? That's town and country Washington Bureau Chief Matt Visser. The congressman is lanky, handsome, and charismatic. Elderly voters sometimes tell him that he's JFK. Nash Jenkins. Uh, If he loses, he still wins. A lot of people think this guy's name. If he wins, they think he's the nominee. If he loses, he may be the Democratic nominee. Peter Alexander. 
win or lose, Beto Rock set the emerge victorious. Follow hashtag midterm coverage here. Rooters. Unlike Ted Cruz, he's charismatic. Beto's a normal human being. That was uh, Brett Stevens from New York Times. He lives by his own rules, man. Bianca Goldren of CBS. He's even pulling in Christian conservatives. Elizabeth Dias, New York Times article. This goes on forever. I, I don't, you got the point. It just never, ever, ever stops. But then it kind of does. Because then we start getting our shit. He wrote articles. Well, we won't get to that. We'll do his, here's his gaffes. Then we'll get into the articles. This dude is a fucking kook, dude. He's a kook. First soundbite is that uh, the climate change is like... People fighting for climate change are like people fighting on Normandy Beach. Yeah. 12 years and begging for gas. Begging for gas as he's driving a minivan. But the Earth's ending in 12 years, dude. Well, the current president says he doesn't believe in climate change. Uh, I don't know how many countries there are on the face of the planet. 192 muscle metals. Um, how could we, who used to be the indispensable nation, be the only country that has removed itself from any obligation to work with anyone on perhaps the most pressing problem? If you think of our leadership, those who preceded us, right? Those who were on the beaches in Normandy, those who faced an existential threat to Western democracy and our way of life, they showed us the way. We, we can all come together, we can unite, we can marshal the resources, and we can convene the countries of the world around otherwise unsolvable problems. That, that's who we are. That's why they call us the indispensable nation. Well, that moment is now for us on this issue. So if there's a time to reassert global leadership and make friends instead of enemies, it's today because the challenges are too great to do otherwise. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Question is on the Green New Deal. Uh, and by extension, if you don't mind, I'll take the spirit of the question. Um, we face catastrophe and crisis on this planet, even if we were to stop emitting carbon today, right now, at this moment. We know that the storms that we saw in Texas, Harvey, which dumped the, the landfall record amount of rain on the United States of America, as long as we've been keeping records, that claimed the lives of too many of our fellow Americans, flooded people literally out of their homes and businesses. Storms like Harvey are only going to become more frequent and more severe and more devastating, and ultimately they'll compromise the ability to live in a city like Houston, Texas. The droughts that we experienced in the panhandle of Texas, five years straight, and then we got a little bit of rain, and then we went back into droughts again. Those same scientists say those droughts will become more profound, more severe at a town hall like this. I remember a young woman came in with her two children. She was skipping her son's basketball practice to be there. She was going to talk to a Democrat, even though she was a lifelong Republican, because she told me that what her grandparents planted on their farm, what her parents planted on their farm, that she is now trying to plant does not grow. She said climate change, Bethel, is not something that we have to prepare for. It is something that is here. Let us all be well aware that life is going to be a lot tougher for the generations that follow us, no matter what we do. It is only a matter of degrees. And along this current trajectory, there will be people who can no longer live in the cities that they call home today. There is food grown in this country that will no longer prosper in these soils. 
There is going to be massive migration of tens or hundreds of millions of people from countries that are literally uninhabitable or underwater that are above the sea right now. This is our final chance. The scientists are absolutely unanimous on this, that we have no more than 12 years to take incredibly bold action on this crisis. My gratitude then for the young people who have stepped up to offer such a bold proposal to meet such a grave challenge. They say that we should do nothing less than marshal every single resource in this country. Hey everybody, we're in Wapolo, Iowa. We started the day in Keokuk. We then went to Fort Madison. Then Arlington, and we're going to stay on the road for a very long time, but it takes your contribution to keep us out here. Let me show you, we've just filled up. Uh, so we've got 12 gallons and the Dodge Grand Caravan that cost us $28.53. Please pitch in, join everyone else to help to make this happen. Thank you. Man, he ain't no Obama. All over the internet's a stupid fucking picture. They're trying to do the Obama hope and change, but it's a Whataburger sign. This red, blue, tan, blue, red streamer thing coming out of the sky on the ground, and he's skateboarding into the White House. I found an article: twenty-five individual reporters, literally. Retweeting his rollout. Who the fuck does that? You didn't do that for Trump. Ted Cruz, when he ran for president, we didn't run their rollout video retweeting it. But as stated, the wheels start coming off. So he's a hacker. And he wrote stories. And they suppressed him. Here's part of a story. This feeling pervaded everything in my life, yet the first few months after realizing my goal, I had done nothing. Then one day as I was driving home from work, I noticed two children crossing the street. They were happy, happy to be free from their troubles. I knew, however, that this happiness and sense of freedom were much too overwhelming for them. This happiness was mine by right. I had earned, I earned it in my dreams. As I neared the young ones, I pulled all my weight on the right foot, keeping the accelerator pedal on the floor until I heard the crashing of the two children on the hood and then the sharp cry of pain from one of them. I was so fascinated for a moment that when after I had stopped my vehicle, I just sat in a day, sweet visions filling my head. I will read no more. Yeah. Robbie Starbucks. Beto O'Rourke wrote a short story years ago calling Visions from the Last Crusade that fantasized about murdering 38 people, including children, but running them over. Reminder that he's been arrested for DUI before. This is disgusting. Every line of this is incredibly disturbing. And he repeats it. I mean, who the fuck writes that? And then we find out, oh, by the way, he wrote poems. And now an original poem by Beto O'Rourke. I need a butt shine. Right now. You are holy, O sacred cow. I thirst for you. Provide milk. Buff my balls. Love the cow. Good fortune for those that do. Love me. Breathe. My feet. The cow has risen. Wax my ass. Scrub my balls. The cow has risen. Provide milk. Oh, milky wonder. 
sing for us once more. Live your life, everlasting joy. Thrust your hooves up my analytic passage. Enjoy my fruits. Provider of cheese and other wonderful dairy products, we will cleanse the inner intestines. We will bathe in your pungent odor. Gather cotton. Count my eyes. Smell my skin. Love the scarecrow and the milkman. I live only for eternity. Thirst for the undrinkable. Hold the heat. Praise the doughboy at the pizza shop. Love the oxen dung. Can I go now? That was an original poem by Peto O'Rourke. What the fuck, man? Seriously? And this is the second coming of Obama? Then Open Secrets gets released. Guess what? O'Rourke took the second most amount of oil money. $476,000. Brian Krakenstein, I find it interesting that the right is attacking Beto O'Rourke more than other Democrat candidates. You guys seem scared. Beto is about to veto Trump's presidency, he says. But that can't be the truth because this is what CNN said. This is seen as a moment by some where Democrats want to nominate either a woman or a minority. Better O'Rourke is neither of those things. O'Rourke is a white male. Something that's very evident to everyone, and that is that he's a white man. He's also a white male. And he's conscious of his white maleness. They may not be open to another white male. Another white male. Another white male. A lot of the energy in the party right now is not for a white man. Vulnerability is running as a white man. As a white male. Being a white man, something he can't change. Being a white man who says, I'm, you know, I was born to do this. Gosh, you know, to say that, it just sort of drips of, of white male privilege. Beto O'Rourke benefited from white privilege. One of the big debates is whether 2020 is the year of the white man. He can't get over the fact that he's a white man, so he just has to accept that. Not the right time for a, a white man to run for the presidency. Is a white man the right guy to, you know, to be the next nominee? There's still an issue in this country where people just get very, very excited about white men. He seems very self-aware of his perceived weaknesses. Yeah, you got to think about that for a second. The very same media that pushes all this intersectionality bullshit and plays the, the white guilt in mass, jerking off to a guy who wrote fantasy porn about killing kids fantasy porn that was pretty bad in that poem is a gaffmeister talks about the end of days or nigh but drives a minivan really that that's your guy i know i'm late to the party anybody listens to podcasts this has been going on for weeks that's why i didn't make a big deal about it and i didn't put it inside the intro you knew beto was running you know the media loves beto but beto's not gonna win it's either gonna be biden or it's going to be that crazy socialist. That's it. Camilla, all these women, they talk the talk. But when it comes to the voters, the problem is the crazies on the base of the left don't vote. They think this country should be socialist. They don't step up to the plate. They just protest and burn shit and beat people up. That's their shtick. So crazy socialist man is probably going to be your Democratic candidate. 
and then America's got to do the ugly of the ugly. Do we want four more years of Trump, or do we want to go to a socialist state? I got to hope in my heart we say we're going to go Trump. I don't want to vote for Trump. I don't. I didn't want to vote the first time. But he's closer to normal if you really break down what we're talking about. I mean, every one of these candidates is a fucking nightmare if you're not a liberal weirdo. They're just a nightmare. So, that's your roundup on 2020. We go to a music break, come into news, social media nuggets. Would you guys like to hear a song that we do called Beautiful? Let's try it. I'm in 
Welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast with Tony Reed. Now it's time for news and social media nuggets. The crazy stuff that makes your host lose his mind. It's a whole new ballgame on campus these days, and they call it PC. PC? Politically correct. And it's not just politics, it's everything. It's what you eat, it's what you wear, and it's what you say. If you don't watch yourself, you can get in a buttload of trouble. For instance, see these girls? No, you don't. Those are women. You call them girls, and they'll pop your figs. military corner and that soundbite's disturbing as fuck some jackass miles lagozi hopes his film combat obscura will alter the sanitized and sanctified view of the military stop looking at these kids as heroes vets documentary just shows all the bad shit 
And I, I'm not even reading the rest. He's a fucking douche nozzle. He was probably a shitty-ass fucking soldier, and he's just out to fucking fuck over everybody he ever served with, with all the bad shit, smoking weed, doing this crap. You know, that's a microcosm, a teeny little view of shitty soldiers compared to the majority that are sacrificing so much with zero recognition. About 21,000 troops have been butted, booted, sorry, <clears throat> butted, I don't even know what that is, booted so far under the deploy or get out policy. It's already taken effect. A lot of turds didn't deploy during all these wars. It's hard to believe uh, that anybody could get away with it, but they do. They, they get TDA assignments and never leave. Here's why the Navy's deploying with a bunch of Louisville sluggers. Now, they're going to the Arctic. And the aircraft carrier, Harry S. Truman, went back and researched a bunch of old books about how they dealt in the Arctic on aircraft carriers and ships and et cetera, et cetera. Because they haven't done it forever. And come to find out, they need those to whack off all the ice and things like that. So, I mean, it was interesting that the old Navy helped the new Navy. And then, unfortunately, the Air Force takes C-130s out of service for examined suspected propeller blades. They took 60 C-130H Hercules that had blades that were manufactured before 1971. Okay. You know, I think we could upgrade the propellers. I mean, good God. Which takes us to our college crazy, and it's a soundbite. Here is a bulletin board being videoed, and you can hear a little bit of it, but just one itsy-bitsy, two-foot-high by four-foot-long, or three-foot-high by four-foot-long billboard for conservatives in a school. And this is what the tolerant left did. They just destroyed it. Is this for these? No, this is for um, the oh, for the interview. interview. Okay. I've been like tweaking with it, and just it's like Windows and video. It's just not. Yeah, that's pretty fucking shitty. It's to be expected. Exclusive video. UC Berkeley spokesman doesn't rule out violence if Trump visits Berkeley. Actually, in the video, which I'm not going to play for time, it sounds like he hopes there's violence. C-U-N-Y, whiteness continues to be a crucial problem in our English department. The City University of New York Graduate School will host an event calling Refusing Institutional Whiteness, Possibilities, Alternatives, and Beyond later this month. Refusal, dissent, and protest are listed as possible ways to combat whiteness in academia. Before it's all said and done, all teachers want to be a person of color. Even get a job at some of these things. And the funniest thing is the people that are pushing it the hardest are usually white liberals. You're pushing yourself out of jobs, you're breeding yourself out of existence. Thus, the left's constant we need these constituents, aka illegal aliens, to be voters. 
UMD student gov votes to create full-time undocumented student coordinator role. A temporary undocumented student coordinator position at the University of Maryland may just become a permanent one. And yes, it's manned by an illegal alien student that should be kicked out of the school because they're going there for free. You white liberals to send your kids to those schools. I guess you can pay for it. YouTube accused of kneecapping free speech. While YouTube may publicly deny demoting videos based on their specific political perspectives, both right and left-wing commentators have noticed a huge drop in recommendations. In February, there's been a massive drop in YouTube recommending content for a select group of creators, from 7.8% recommendation rate to a minuscule 0.4%. That's a whopping 94.87% drop. Queensland University of Technology Associate Professor Nicholas Souser announced the YouTube has stopped recommending alt-right channels. Described this initiative as a long-awaited move achieved by major change in YouTube's up-next recommendations. Even though the list of so-called alt-right bloggers include everyone from the Daily Wire to liberals like Dave Rubin, Suzer explained that its study of this phenomenon used an 80-plus YouTube channel listed by Rebecca Lewis in her report on alternative influence networks on YouTube as their test case. Based on this study by Lewis, it repeated the erroneous claim that even channels with conventional conservative ideology, such as general opposition to feminism, social justice, or left-wing politics, or mainstream versions of libertarianism and conservatism, could be framed as alt-right. That turn has become especially controversial since 27 violence in Charlottesville. The alternative influence list lumped in a range of people from political centrist free speech advocates like Joe Rogan and lumped them in with white supremacist Richard Spencer. The report even show how conservative pundit Ben Shapiro is connected to white nationalist Richard Spencer. What makes that even more insane is Shapiro's Jewish. A YouTube spokesman claimed to CNET that their platform was not targeting alt-right videos. We announced in January that we're reducing recommendations of borderline content or videos that can misinform users in a harmful way. Why continues. Fact of the matter is, it's what we talked about last podcast and every podcast before it. It's not about hateful speech. It's suppressing all opposing views. They do not want any opposing view. All they have to do is call it alt-right and it gets banned seeing it on every social media platform, I'm living proof. Mine has never been recommended. Even when I had 150, 200 people listening a day, it was never featured, it was never promoted, suppressed. You have to search for it if you want to find it. Even when I search for flyover politic on Apple, Google, etc., it comes up under everything there is of, that ever had a name like it that aren't even active podcasts. My original name was Politics with a C. But there was a small radio station doing it. They don't even exist. They're not doing it anymore. They did it for the uh, one primary. And then they went off the air. But they still feature them. Sarah Silverman brings us to the oh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me category. I can't fucking believe there are still nude bras and nylon and band-aids. If you are companies still using nude to describe exclusively Caucasian shade in 20 motherfucking 19, you need to change now or go the way of the dinosaur, baby. 
Really? Are you fucking serious? And then this wizard came out. Yashar Ali is not the wizard, but he points this out. Maya Angelou is trending nationally because there are some folks who are offended that she directed a young woman to call her Miss Angelou instead of Maya in a 20-year-old clip. lived so long and tried so hard that a young woman like you or any other has no you have no license to come up to me and call me by my first name that's great that's great also because at the same time i am your mother i'm your auntie i'm your teacher i'm your professor it's called respect man she's one of the greatest african-americans ever Poetry is used for everything, but really? Which brings us to our great ship. This is kind of awesome. How Real America Became Queer America. The Trump administration may be busy waging culture wars, but in the heartland, it's never been a better time to be LGBT. This was in the New York, excuse me, Washington Post. They literally go through this whole article, and at no time does it actually state how awesome people are changed that the whole LGBT people are getting beaded, all that stuff isn't happening but it does sign an interesting thing, the shift is thanks to a large part of the increasing proportion of Americans who identify as LGBT themselves, according to Gallup polling, 4.5% of American adults now identify as LGBT but in her thing, she went across Louisville, Norfolk, New Orleans Salt Lake City are seeing huge spikes in percentage of the residents identify as LGBT, and she can find nothing other than the usual diatribe that, oh, it's still bad. But I have no examples, and they're literally not in the bubble. In the end of it, she said, uh, at the same time, between 90 and 2014, the same statistics stayed relatively static for a long-standing hub of gay culture like San Francisco and Los Angeles, and even fell in New York City. America's queer center of gravity is moving towards the middle. Before we know that this country will have become LGBT friendly, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. There are plenty of reasons for LGBT Americans to feel dependent and despondent right now, but hope is just down the road. Samantha Allen is an author recently of Real Queer America, blah, 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 writes the Daily Beast. She's a fucking part of the gay mafia, and this article had to break her fucking heart. Mainstream media won't push it, but it's the bubble where the violence is. It's not the middle of the country. And even Ellen Page show proved gay, transgender are treated just fine in these little flyover states because we don't give a fuck about who you fuck. Just don't believe in gay marriage. It's all it was ever about. It wasn't you can't rent, you can't work. Nobody hires somebody and asks what's your sexual orientation. There have been laws on the books for decades. Then there's this next article. The age of white Christian America is ending. Here, how it got there, and here's what comes next. This article is so off the map, and it's all based on lower percentage of people 
going to church. So they say it's the end of white Christian America and we will become non-religious and be a bunch of fucking atheists. That doesn't fit with what the previous article and it's the same goddamn place. Saturday Night Live accused of plagiarizing New York comedy duo Sketch. SNL aired last October a sketch about pumpkin patch where the employees, much to the consternation of the proprietor, engaged in sexual intercourse with the product. The pumpkin patch was lewd, funny, and seasonally appropriate. But according to Nick Rugia and Ryan Hoffman, it was something else. Theft. Rugia and Hoffman are the founders of the sketch troupe Temple Horses. Since their first collaboration in 2011, the two New York comedy scene veterans have filmed more than 60 sketches together, many of which are available on their YouTube channel, which boasts more than 3,000 subscribers. Ruge and Hoffman claim that two of those sketches, Not Trying to Fuck the Pumpkin and Pet Blinders, were plagiarized by SNL. Imagine one day you come home and look at somebody robbed your house, Hoffman said. What do you want from the situation? We feel like somebody took our stuff and this isn't the kind of thing where you can just get back or call your insurance company to have it replaced. So at this point, we're just speaking out about it. An NBC spokesman declined the comment. An SNL source noted that Pumpkin Patch and other SNL sketch in question, Pound Puppy, were penned by different writers but did not identify or wrote either. In a letter sent to NBC last month obtained by Variety, Rugia and Hoffman attorney Wallace Nell laid it out in detail the alleged similarities between these sketches. In the case of not trying to fuck the pumpkin, pumpkin patch. Each opens with the protagonist, owner of a pumpkin patch, doing business and blah, blah, blah. And it breaks it down. But it totally, if you, I'm not playing the videos, but if you literally look at the videos, yeah, they stole this shit. They stole it. you think how many I mean the pumpkin patch and pound puppy alone on YouTube have 1.48 million views so they've been around a long time before they did this so that'll be interesting but it relayed me into something else we're watching the shield and we didn't watch originally but a guy came on, and I, I saw his face, he's a Latino guy, and I go, I know that guy, who is he? And he's Mind of Mencia. You remember the guy from back in the day, it was a, a Comedy Central show. <clears throat> and he just went away, and I didn't know why. So when I researched, the same thing happened. He got caught plagiarizing people's comedy routines and doing it on his show, and then nobody wanted to touch him again. It was actually broken by Joe Rogan. He brought him on and called him out on it, and it ruined this guy's career. But I thought he was funny as shit. So before we go into a new little lighter fare set, not a lighter fare, but a new thing we're going to start doing on the show, I wanted to play a couple skits from it because I thought this guy was hilarious. Hispanic characters. You know, 
what? I can be in Hollywood and play a drug dealer. I can be a pimp. But my people don't know how to be fabulous. Is that what you're saying? No. So I remade the movie the way it was supposed to be. And here is a trailer. I'm a little nervous. Never worked in an office before. You and me and we'll do it together. It started as a friendship. Now that we're in town, we really should see this now. It became a secret. wants me to go up the mountains with Sergio and finish up a report. You don't go up there to finish reports. And you don't want it from behind anymore. A lie they didn't hide very well. I don't know if anybody finds out about this. It destroys. We have to be really, really nice. And welcome to the Mail View. How you guys doing, man? I'm good, man. I'm good, man. Thanks for asking. What's the first topic? I can't wait to express my feelings. 
I can't wait to hear him, bro. So last night uh, I was watching TV and they were doing the protest on the war. And you know what, guys? I'm glad we're there, and I think we did the right thing. That's crap. We need to pull out. You know who should have pulled out? Your dad, about nine months before you were born. Oh, hell no. You want to get crazy? We need that. Let's go, fat ass. Hey, I'm not fat, all right? For the last time, I am fluffy. Oh, yeah? See that? That's how you do it, baby. Can we just get along, putos? You know what? You're right. You're right. My bad. My bad. Sorry, bro. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. All right. 2008 elections. Mm. Who do you guys think is going to win? I like John McCain. No way. It's going to be the black guy, uh, Obama, big Latin. You are a moron. Let's see what you got, bigot. Come, come on. on. It's come on. I'm going to knock the English into you. Not cool, dude. My bad. I'm sorry. I saw the magazine cover. Jessica Alba's on it. Did you guys see it? Oh, I will burn her. I bang her too. Oh, me too. Finally, it's something we all agree on. You know what? None of you guys are going to touch Jessica Alba. Because she's mine, bitches! Jessica, I love you. He was a funny, funny guy. So... Back in the day, I bought a book called The American Patriot's Almanac, Daily Readings on America by William J. Bennett and John T. E. Cribb. Every day you read a story, the the one they selected as the most pertinent story about America, and then you have a history parade that talks about, well, on this day, blah, 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 blah. Me and my wife read it. We stopped for a couple of years and we started back up. We're doing it again now. Uh, every night before we go to bed, we read this quick little article. And it's kind of a reminder of what the great history of our country is. It covers the bad shit. It covers, uh, it covered the death of Martin Luther King on it. Um, but it talks about how we, as, as a country, have become the greatest country in the world, even though progressives in the media will never admit to it. So, Today, March 18th, is Parliament Repeals the Stamp Act. We're going to read a short story and hit the history parade. And every time we do a podcast, I'm going to read that day's uh, story. No taxation without representation. That was the angry cry of American colonists when the British Parliament passed laws requiring them to pay new taxes. Britain had spent a great deal of money to protect the colonies, especially during the French and Indian War. In Parliament's view, the colonists should help pay for the defense. The colonists took a different view. They were used to being taxed by their own assemblies, but they had no representative in distant Parliament. As they saw it, they were being taxed without their consent. They especially hated the 1765 Stamp Act. It said that most printed materials, licensed contracts, wills, newspapers, pamphlets, almanacs, even playing cards, must bear an official stamp which the colonists had to buy. The act inflamed the colonists. Riots broke out. Mobs attacked the homes of the Royal Tax Office. Young Patrick Henry rose to speak in the Virginia House of Bruges. Caesar had his Brutus. Charles I is Cromwell, he said, signing two famous rulers whose actions had led to their own deaths. And George III, some members were shocked. Treason, they shouted. Henry continued. 
And George III may profit from their example of this be treason, make the most of it. Stunned by the furious response, Parliament repealed the Stamp Act on March 18, 1766, but the crisis had made America acutely aware of their rights. As John Adams wrote, the people were more attentive to their liberties, more inquisitive about them, and more determined to defend them. The American History Parade, uh, okay, that's the first one was in 1766, what we just read. 1834, the first railroad tunnel in the United States opened for business. The Staple Bend Tunnel in western Pennsylvania. 1837, Grover Cleveland, the only U.S. president to serve two non-concurrent terms, is born in Codwell, New Jersey. And in 1925, the Tri-State Tornado, the deadliest tornado in U.S. history, killed some 700 people in Missouri, Illinois, and Indiana. And I'm sure liberals didn't go on TV, on newspapers, because there was no TV, and say, climate change. Tomorrow for the 19th, just to show you what it's like, the story is The Book That Helped End Slavery, which is Uncle Tom's Cabin. See? Covers everything. And the History Parade for the 19th of March, 1831, Edward Smith steals $240,000 from the City Bank of downtown New York, the first recorded bank robbery in American history. 1916, the first U.S. Air Combat Mission began at the 1st Aero Squadron takes off from Columbus, New Mexico, an expedition to catch Pancho Villa. 1952, the one millionth Jeep originally produced as a general purpose vehicle for the U.S. Army is manufactured. Tomorrow's Jeep Day! Woohoo! And in 1979, the U.S. House begins televising its day-to-day business on the system. So, it is a fantastic novel, or book, excuse me, if you are ever inclined, you can buy it on Google. I have the, the hardbound, but I I bought it on Google because I couldn't find the book. It's somewhere in the box downstairs. Um, and it's an interesting way to remind yourself with all the negative, with all the politics on both sides, with all the protests, the fucking media in this incredible country and our history is unparalleled in this world of where we come from and where we're at it's the future that all of us and why I do a podcast need to be really scary just scared about it because some would have us go and erase all that history and become something you were never intended to our lighter fans Morning, morning, morning. Morning, morning, morning. What? No, I only just fucking got here. No, I only, I only just fucking got here. Yeah. Morning, Tim. Morning. Howdy. How was Washington? Great. Fucking sweet. Yep. What? What? I'm not, I'm not shocked at all, Tim. Tim, I've, I haven't even been into makeup yet, Tim. I'm not shocked at all. I've been saying this for fucking months. Nearly a year. Uh, the moment you think he can't do it is the moment he takes the White House. Of course Trump fucking won. What is everyone so fucking shocked about? Jesus, the media, the political elite, the pollsters, the markets, you. Ooh, a drawer on the floor. How can everyone be so fucking stupid? Hillary Clinton. What were the Democrats thinking? 
Hillary Clinton. Don't get me wrong, I wanted Hillary to win. I'd personally vote for Lucifer over Donald Trump. Trump, the pussy-grabbing, wall-building, climate-change-denying, healthcare-abolishing, tax-dodging, shit-spewing demagogue. How shit have you got to be to lose to that? Where was Sanders? Why wasn't he on the ticket? I, I have no doubt in my mind that Sanders would have beaten Trump's Trump, hands down. But instead, they chose Clinton, a candidate who's been cozying up to the banks and dry-humping corporations for years, who is on record telling her corporate friends that you should have a public and a private persona. In other words, don't tell the truth to the plebs or you won't be able to rip them off. She'll do. That was the feeling. What did they think was going to happen? People keep saying to me, how did this happen? They're, they're dumbfounded. But it's so simple. The left did this. This is, this is my fault, people like me. When are we going to learn? The left have given up putting any argument across at all to the point where Clinton is considered left, liberal. On many issues, Theresa May is less right-wing than Clinton. That's just a fucking fact. And yet my friends are on Facebook saying, I'm with her. I'm fucking not. Oh, but she's better than Trump. Sorry, that's not good enough. Clearly. Clearly it's not good enough. And if, if I see, fuck me, one more tweet containing, a, containing a, a hashtag Trump wins next to a hashtag everyday sexism, I'm going to drop a fucking bollock. Not everyone that voted for Trump is a sexist or a racist. Some of them are, but most aren't. Most people didn't vote for her. Not because she's a woman. They didn't vote for her because she offered no palpable change whatsoever. Same old shit. Trump represents a change, a terrifying change, but a change nonetheless. Hillary represented, well, she represented very little, actually, because she protects corporate interests, because she doesn't call the police when questions from the debate are leaked to her in advance. I noticed we barely reported that. Not everyone that voted for Trump is a sexist or a racist. How many times does the vote not have to go our way before we realise that our argument isn't won by hurling labels and insults? Tory majority, government, uh, Brexit, Trump, uh, uh, Trump, what next? When will we learn that the key is discussion? If you are unwilling to discuss, then you are creating the conditions in which Donald Trump and people like him can thrive. But instead of persuading people to vote, she just, she just courted celebrity endorsements and then lost. What's going on? It's almost as if the political acumen of Beyonce and Jay-Z count for nothing. And then she loses it and, and loses the election and she locks herself in her hotel because she's too upset or because it had never occurred to them to even write a concession speech. Either way, grow up. I have no sympathy for her whatsoever. Be a better candidate. <sighs> but I, thing is, I can't say that. I can't say this to any of my friends, Tim. People like me, I, I get fucking lynched if I said this because people like me won't listen. I, I did this. This is my fault. Fucking Donald Trump. The left is responsible for this result. Because the left have now decided that any other opinion, any other way of looking at the world is unacceptable. We don't debate anymore because the left won the cultural war. So if, if you're on the right, you're a freak. You're evil. You're racist. You're stupid. You are a basket of deplorables. How do you think people are going to vote if you talk to them like that? When has anyone ever been persuaded by being insulted or, or labelled? So now, if you're on the right or even against the prevailing view, you are attacked for raising your opinion. That's why people wait until they're in the voting booth. No-one's watching anymore. There's no blame or shame or anything, and you can finally say what you really think, and that is a powerful thing. The Tories in charge, Brexit, and now Trump. And all the polls were wrong, all of them. Because when asked, people can't admit what they think. 
They can't admit what they think. They're not allowed to. The left don't allow them to. We have made people unable to articulate their position for fear of being shut down. They're embarrassed to say it. Every time someone on the left has said, you mustn't say that, they are contributing to this culture. It's time to stop moaning. It's time to stop crying over spilt fucking Brexit. It's time to stop ignoring your opponents or worse, trying to silence them. It's time to stop banning people from speaking in universities. It's time to stop thinking that reposting an article on your Facebook feed is political engagement. That banning a gymnast from doing what he's good at because he insulted someone's religion somehow achieved something. And sorry, when did the Gymnast Association start thinking it was appropriate to start enforcing blasphemy laws? It's time to realise that reading The Guardian doesn't make you a liberal, that retweeting Greenpeace doesn't lower your carbon footprint. And if my mansplaining is triggering you, you can either fuck off to your safe space or you can engage and debate me and tell me what I'm getting wrong. Because Trump just won the White House. Being offended doesn't work anymore. Throwing insults doesn't work anymore. The only thing that works is fucking bothering, doing something. And all you have to do is engage in the debate. Talk to people who think differently to you and persuade them of your argument. It's so easy and the left have lost the art. Stop thinking that everyone who disagrees with you is evil or racist or sexist or stupid and talk to them. Persuade them otherwise because if you don't, I'll tell you what you get. You get President Trump. Right, I need to go for a shit and a shave. Uh, How long we got, Tim? All right, I might need to have to forego the shit. Okay, that was from Matt in Oregon or Zach in Tennessee. God knows when I got these. And I apologize, guys, because it, it literally was a long time ago and somehow I just never played them. Um, but it wasn't a light affair to an extent. It was about how Trump got elected, but the guy's British and I just threw it in there. Gonna bring us to our This is the America 2019. You're gonna hear two politicians on the left talk about voting. And then I'll explain why, out of all this horrible shit, I pick these as the worst sound bites of the day. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. It's time for the last sound bite. Like the media say when they are pushing this is America in 2019. Here, I'm sorry, I must reclaim my time. Mr. Kobach later sent an email to you on July 14th writing that the lack of the citizenship question, quote, leads to the problem that aliens who do not actually reside in the United States are still counted for congressional apportionment services. Of course, they do reside in the United States. They reside in my district. They're my constituents. But he then wrote, quote, it is essential that one simple question be added to the upcoming 2020 census. It's all there in black and white. Kobach is clear about criticism from the ACLU about it in in regards to the the freedom of speech issue. And as far as 16-year-olds voting, where do you see that going into the future? Well, I I, I disagree with the ACLU on this. In terms of legislation, we couldn't be prouder than H.R. 1. This is about reducing the role of big, dark, special interest money in politics and empowering small donors. It's about ending voter suppression. It's about making redistricting fair. It's, it's, It's really a source of joy and hope to so many people in the country. I myself, personally, am not speaking for my caucus, 
I myself have always been for lowering the, vote, the voting age to 16. I think it's really important to capture kids when they're in high school, when they're interested in all of this, when they're learning about government to be able to vote. That is, that is not necessary. You know, in other words, some of the priorities in this bill are about uh, transparency and openness and accessibility and the rest. Uh, that's a subject of debate. But my view is that uh, I would welcome that. But I've been in that position for a long time. When, when the voting age was lowered, it used to be 21, I remember, it was lowered to 18. The, the argument was, look, if you can draft uh, young men at 18 yes. and send them off to Vietnam to die, they should have a right to vote. So it was a very, very powerful moral argument to it. What's the argument now to push it well, down to Well, first, let me just say, isn't it uh, very appropriate that it was Senator Ted Kennedy, yes. actually, who proposed that? And so yeah. Massachusetts is still, uh, you know, mm -hmm. offering these sorts of amendments. Um, and I'm proud to keep that history going. But, you know, for me, the argument is that in 2019, uh, 20. Uh, 16 year olds are dealing with 2019 challenges, hardships, and threats, and we should show some 2019 courage uh, that's commiserate um, with um, what they're facing. They're leading on the existential uh, threats uh, to our very society gun violence prevention, uh, climate change, uh, and so many other issues. And uh, they clearly already have a stake in this democracy, and they should also be able to cast a ballot. Ayanna Presley, you are making former congressional staffers so proud because you're, you're a former House of Representatives <laughs> staffer, yes. former Senate staffer. Oh, and now you're in there asking the questions. Yes. Thank you.